Morning, everybody. Good to see you. Let me be the second person to uh, welcome you this morning to Downtown Presbyterian Church. And let me introduce myself. My name is Jake Patton. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad you're here with us this morning. I am going to, without permission, embarrass a couple very quickly. Um, here in the back row on the center aisle are Danny and Ospa Clark, some seminary friends of mine and Paige's uh, from about 10 years ago. And we were laughing this morning in the lobby because um, uh, Danny and I took a, uh, a class together, Acts and Paul, where we studied the missionary journeys of Paul, and we had to memorize which cities came first, which ones came last. And that's what we're pre- preaching on this morning, is, is Paul's first missionary journey. So I find the irony encouraging. Um, but they're at uh, College of Charleston, just in the low country. I'm certainly glad you're here. Coleman, good to see you too. <laughs> peace sign. He gave me the peace sign. That's awesome. Uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, let's open together to Acts chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 8 and read all the way through verse 22. So Acts 14, 8 uh, through 22. If I were to say famous historical speeches, what would immediately come to your mind? Famous historical speeches. Uh, maybe the first thing that might pop into your head is, uh, okay, uh, MLK's I Have a Dream. That's a pretty important one. Or, or maybe Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. That was another very important speech. Or if you're a movie buff, maybe it was William Wallace's speech right before the battle in Braveheart, right? You can think of a couple. Well, the speech or sermon that we're looking at this morning of one is, is one of Paul's more famous historical sermons and speeches uh, in the city of Lystra. And maybe you didn't know this, uh, but Acts is a book full of sermons and speeches. 25% of the book of Acts are sermons. And there's 32 of them total altogether from Peter and from Paul and from others. Uh, so it's chock full of information, some short, some long. Um, with that in mind, let's look at this historical speech together, this sermon by Paul, Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the holy city, excuse me, to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, 
And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is God breathe. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, your word, our treasure. And with it, we would ask that you would turn our reading into genuine listening and hearing, and that that in turn would turn into believing and faith. Would you change our our minds, our appetites, our wills, every inch of us, that we might look more like your son and do so for his glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently my son and I have been doing some camping trips up in uh, Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina. And to get to this particular camping spot that Luke and I like to go to, we actually have to spend a good chunk of time on the actual Blue Ridge Parkway. And if you've ever been on the Blue Ridge Parkway, uh, you will know that they kind of have unique mile markers on this stretch of road. If you're on a regular highway, regular interstate, you've got the green sign, reflective numbers, well, the Blue Ridge Parkway does it just a little bit differently. I don't know if they're stone or cement, but these, these tall pillars, right, and etched and engraved into these pillars are the numbers. And that's very important because um, mile marker 419 is where Luke and I pull off. That's where our camping spot is. So we need to be able to see it. We need, need to be able to track with it. They even painted the numbers blue, right? We see what you're doing. We see what you're doing there, Blue Ridge Parkway. Well done. Blue numbers, Blue Ridge Parkway. Um, but particularly on that road, because it's so windy, because it's so treacherous, there's so many ups and downs, there's so many intersections. On that road in particular, mile markers are very, very helpful. They're good. They remind you that, hey, okay, despite all of the change in altitude and all of these curves, we are on the right track. We're doing things right. We're still where we want to be. A lot of people see life that way too, right? Life is kind of like a road. And all along the road, we have different kinds of mile markers. But the difference between us and the Blue Ridge Parkway is all of our mile markers, they just look different. They don't all look the same. We have some mile markers in our lives that look and feel like a cheerleader. Very encouraging. Right? They kind of feel like a stroke. Like, like we're, doing, we're, we're on the right track because things are good. Right? Somebody encourages you. Um, the way you forgave that person or, or the way you were generous, it reminded me of God. And internally, you may not say this external, but you just go, okay, I'm doing it right. I'm where I'm supposed to be. But if we're honest at other times, we have some mile markers in our life that aren't so glamorous, that don't feel like a cheerleader. We wouldn't put these on Instagram. They feel more like a, a midwife whispering in your ear, it's hard. It's tough, but you've got to push. I know it's hard. It's painful. But just keep moving. And in our passage this morning, Paul and Barnabas are coming off of one of those really, really encouraging, really, really good mile markers. They've been in Antioch and Iconium. And what Paul says is that many, Jew and Gentile, convert to the Lord. Many call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So they're putting that city behind them and they're going... 
That's a good mile marker. Praise the Lord. That's so good. But things are about to take a dramatic turn. Verse 6 in chapter 14 says that the Jews began to conspire how they might stone Paul. That's not a good one. That's a mile marker that's going to be full of pain, full of suffering. It's going to bring him within an inch of his life. And if we're honest, we kind of think about life in terms of mile markers. We love the encouraging ones. We love talking about those. Um, But we really don't know what to do with the hard ones. We don't know what to do with pain and suffering in a lot of ways. And we can do one of three things uh, with pain and with suffering. Number one, we we can become paralyzed. We can just stop. If we're on this road, this journey to life, we can just throw the emergency brake and just go, I'm not going forward, I'm not going backward, I'm just not moving because I don't know what to do. This is so painful and this is so hurtful. And that might describe you this morning, you just feel paralyzed. Others of us, when we experience great pain and suffering, it's like, I'm getting off. Where's the nearest exit ramp? Get me off of this road. This road is too uncomfortable, it is too painful, I want a different one. Now maybe that's you this morning. But there is a third option, and I'll, I'll be honest, the third option is the hardest. It's not stopping. It's not using the exit ramp. It's pushing through. It's trucking on. It's moving past it. It's moving through it. And that's very, very hard to do. But what we see in this passage this morning is Paul and Barnabas doing that very thing. They almost succeed in stoning Paul. Almost. And what does he and what, what do Barnabas do? They keep going. We're meant at this point in the story to ask, how in the world is he able to do that? Is he given some special grace? Is it because he's Paul that he does this? And the good news is that the answer to that question is no. It's not because he's special. He's human just like you and me. If he and Barnabas can press on and pain and suffering move forward, then we can too. He's a human. He's a man just like us, like he tells the Lyconians here. We can press on too. Well, How? Um, let's look at three things this morning. If you're keeping notes, these are my points. So I'm going to look at the flattery first, the flattery, then the appeal, and then the friction. The flattery, the appeal, and then the friction. First, uh, the flattery. Uh, I read an article by the BBC that came out last year. It's about this a Brazilian grandmother, and she has been a devout Catholic her whole life, and every day uh, she confessed that she prays to St. Anthony. And on her table in her little living area, she even has a little statue, a little figurine of St. Anthony. And uh, she's been doing this again her whole life. And then one day, one of her granddaughters came through the house, always seen that figurine, always seen the table, but this time she took a closer look, and, and she, she, got, she got really close to it, and she realized that that's not a figurine of St. Anthony. That's Lord Elrond from The Lord of the Rings. It's an action figure, meaning that for an undisclosed amount of time, a number of years, she has been praying to the wrong person, kneeling, worshiping, talking, doing the right things, but to the wrong person altogether. And what's happening in this passage is very similar. The Lyconians are, are worshiping. They're praising, they're, they're people of glory. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they're doing it in the wrong place and to the wrong person. Uh, let's look at that again, verses 8 through 10. I'm going to kind of paraphrase these passages. Because um, what we're meant to see here is, is Luke is drawing a comparison for us. It's been a long time since we've been in Acts chapter 3. 
But what Luke is trying to say that what, what Paul is doing here to this man who's been lame from birth, by using the same words, Peter did the exact same thing in Acts chapter 3 to another lame man who was lame from birth. Get up and walk. And there was great celebration. The parallels are uncanny. And what Luke is trying to tell us is this, is that the miracles that Jesus did, the healings that Jesus did, the miracles that, that Peter did, and the miracles that Paul are doing, there's a thread of consistency here. They're all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. They are supernatural. How did Jesus do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How did Peter do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How did Paul do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. That is how this man was healed. And these people wasted no time. They stopped what they were doing. They went and got the oxen and the garland. And it took Paul and Barnabas just a few moments to realize because they don't speak Lyconian. It took them a few moments to realize that, wait a minute, we're the center of attention here. They think we're God. They think we are the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's when they pull out all the stuff to say, no, 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 no. Pause. That's what's not going on here. That's not what's going on here. So again, they're doing the right thing. They're worshiping. They're being peoples of glory, people of glory for the, for the right reasons, just in the wrong direction. And there's a really good reason why they're doing this. Let me geek out for a minute. Hang with me. About 50 years uh, before Paul uh, came on the scene here in Lystra, a Greek poet by the name of Ovid wrote a story and a parable about how Zeus and Hermes kind of took on the form of the appearance of peasants. They looked rough. And so they're coming through Lystra and other neighborhoods and towns, Derby, and they're seeking hospitality, and nobody is taking them in. But then finally, Zeus and Hermes make it to the house of this very, very old and poor couple. And for what meager rations that they had, they take in Zeus and Hermes. And so in response to this, Zeus and Hermes bless this couple who's poor with riches. And then on behalf of everybody else, they cause this great flood and they wipe out everybody else because nobody else would take them in. Nobody else would show hospitality. And so we ask the question, well, so why are the Lyconians worshiping Paul? We just kind of go, are they just cavemen? Are they Neanderthals? No, there's a really good reason why. They're afraid. They're afraid of these two. They don't want to miss this opportunity. They, 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 they think they missed it the first time. They don't want to make the same mistake again. They're people of worship just in the wrong direction. It's not Paul. It's not Barnabas. It's not Zeus. It's not Hermes. And so this is where Paul makes his appeal. Jump to the second point here. That's where Paul jumps in. And before we look at what he says, uh, I read a story last year about a couple. And the wife in this couple, she suffered a very severe stroke. And it left the left side of her face paralyzed. And you could tell because her face um, kind of drooped and, and sagged. It was very easy to see. And they're telling the story, and she confessed that you know, she was embarrassed uh, to show herself to her husband because she was afraid that he wouldn't find her attractive anymore. And she told him this uh, right before they met for the first time. She was afraid, and she was scared. And without saying anything... The husband just smiled, took her face in his hands, and he contorted and, and conformed his lips in such a way that it matched hers, and he just kissed her on the lips and smiled at her. He conformed to her. He didn't make her conform to him. He did that for her. 
In this passage, Paul is going to kiss the Lyconians, and he's going to conform to them. Not make them conform to him, but he's going to take the gospel message and put it in such a way that they can understand it, and they can hear it, and, and, and perceive it. In chapter 13, Paul did this in Antioch and Iconium. He did it for the Jews. He used the Old Testament language. He used the prophets. He used the law. He talked about how Jesus was the fulfillment of this Messiah prophecy in the Old Testament. Right? That was their language. That was their context. That was their culture. He was conforming to them while being a Jew. But now he and Barnabas have crossed the tracks. They're in the mountains. They're in Gentile and Greek territory. They don't have the Old Testament scriptures. They know nothing of Yahweh. They don't know the prophets. They don't know the law. And so rather than speaking to them about Christ, did you notice what he speaks about? Look at verse 15. The second part of verse 15. He says that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Jump down to verse 17. Look at the second part of that verse as well. For he, God, did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. No talk of Christ. No talk of the Messiah. But what does he talk about? He talks about creation. He talks about the providence of God. Like the rain that we are enjoying this morning, we know where that came from. That is part of God's provision for us. And, and so Paul and Barnabas are saying, hey, hey, stay with me here. Track with me. That miracle you saw us do, that healing, that wasn't us. That wasn't Paul. That wasn't Barnabas. Nor was that Zeus or Hermes. The rain you see. And what does the rain produce? It produces a harvest. And what does the harvest produce? It produces food for you. And when you're full, how do you feel? You feel joy and you feel gladness. What is the common denominator across this? All of these elements, the healing, the beauty you see in nature. What's the common denominator? It's God. It's this living God. And Paul says, this is good news. Because everything you've been worshiping is vain. Us included. We are vain. But God is not. He's living and he's active. And he tells them to turn. And we have a term for this uh, in our circles. And I bring it up again. We, we talk about this a lot. But because it's here, we're going to say it again. What is it called, that behavior in the Christian life, where you turn from things that have power over you? Things that maybe you, you know or maybe you don't know that you're worshiping. Things that if God removed them from your life, your life would be undone. Those are called idols and vain things. And if you turn your attention and your worship from those and you turn it and you give it to the living God, what is that behavior called? It's called repentance. It's turning from those vain things who are dead, who can't bring you life, that have no power, to the living God who gives you rain, food, gladness, the scriptures. He's asking them to repent and to turn. Lastly, um, the friction. This is a very bipolar, I don't use that term lightly. This is a very bipolar passage. We start with great flattery. They're about to worship Paul and Barnabas. And then just in the span of a few verses, what happens? Um, Paul's within an inch of his life. They stone him. And we go, what happened? Um, the friction. Um, if you've ever been to the Patton House, uh, we have a very skinny driveway. To the left side of our driveway is our neighbor's yard, and to the right side of our driveway is about a three-foot 
rock wall kind of border. And it's got large stones in it. Um, It's cemented with mortar. Um, It kind of holds up the yard. And uh, one day I was doing yard work out there, and I noticed a plant growing out the side of the mortar and the stone. It made its way out, and and it's grown right now to about eight inches. I have no idea what kind of plant it is. And just kind of instinctively, because it's weed season, I went over there and grabbed it and was about to yank it out of the wall. But then I had, had, a, had a second thought. I said, you know what? Bless you. <laughs> You've had a hard life. I applaud you, O plant. You get to stick around for a while. I don't know what you are or what you're going to do. But because you are so resilient, because you've gone through so much friction and adversity, it's wrong for me to pull you. We're, we're going we're to let you live, buddy. And so we have, and, it, and, it's, and it's still there. This portrait of Paul and Barnabas is, is, is similar. What they're able to withstand, this, this friction that they're able to withstand is, is pretty incredible. Their resilience is incredible. Where, where, does this, where does this come from? We're not exactly sure why or what these Jews say to turn the crowds, but look back at verse 19. These Jews come from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, we don't know what argument they used. We don't know what it is that kind of pushed the uh, the Lystrians over the edge. Um, But they said something. And so the mob mentality kicks in. And what happens is um, is stoning. And again, if you don't know what what a stoning is, a stoning isn't something meant to kind of discipline or correct somebody. It's not used to reclaim somebody to go, okay, now, now go and repent and go do no more. Stoning was the Jewish form of execution. It was their version of capital punishment. And we're not talking about like little stones. We're talking about boulders. These were meant to crush you, to break your bones, and to end your life. And they thought they did. They thought they succeeded. They stoned Paul. They drag him outside the city and they leave him for dead. Paul would actually reference this stoning later in 2 Corinthians. He said, three times I was beaten with a rod, and once I was stoned. This is what he's talking about. Within an inch of his life, and it's here, look at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. Pause. Don't look further. Lift your head up. Don't look. Let's imagine for a moment we're in Paul's sandals here. You've just preached the gospel. You're coming off one of those, those really blessed and encouraging mile markers. And now you have been stoned within an inch of your life. How will you respond? Well, Lystra, <laughs> done with you. Later. No more gospel preaching for you. And in fact, I'm going to pray an imprecatory psalm against you, a psalm of cursing. May God deal with you severely. Right? Never going back to that city ever again. And not just that, but, I mean, you've just been stoned within an inch of your life. You probably look rough, so you deserve some downtime. Put yourself on the DL, go get some rehab, rest up, gain your energy, and then we'll talk later on down the road when it's, when it's time to go back on the field, right? All of that we would go, probably our normal reaction to being stoned, right? Paul doesn't do any of that. Look where we pick back up, verse 20. He rose up. And entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. No rehab. No disabled list. He probably looked rough. 
probably had broken bones to some degree. We don't know how. Tired, fatigued, worn out. And what did he do? He and Barnabas just kept trucking. They didn't throw the emergency brake. They didn't stop. They didn't take the exit ramp. They just pushed on through. And so this is where we come back to our original question, how? How does one do that? How did they do it and how do we do it? Um, Let me end with this. Look at verse 22. The last part of that verse, it says, And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Here's what I think uh, Luke and what the Lord want us to hear about that. If you ever have the chance to travel to the island of Maui, do it. I really have to twist your arm, don't I? I don't know. Do it. And if you ever get to go there, you have to visit the top of Haleakala National Park. Haleakala is the name of the very large volcano that is the island of Maui. And you travel up there early in the morning to watch the sunrise over this volcanic crater. Now, undoubtedly, you have seen some pretty incredible sunrises in your life, but you have never seen a sunrise across the volcanic crater in Haleakala National Park. It is second to none. It is glorious. It is transcendent. But it comes at a great cost. You've got to pay for a nine-hour flight to get there, six-hour time change, and you have to get up at an ungodly hour uh, to drive up the mountain because you're at sea level, right, when you're in, on in normal parts of, of Maui. But then you have to climb over 10,000 feet in the span of two or three hours in a car. If you don't get car sick, you will. If you've never been car sick, this road, because of all the switchbacks, it will make you nauseous. And they cram you into a van with 12 other people that you don't know that are suffering from jet lag. And they're, they're sleeping on your shoulder. And you've got a big drool stain from them. And you don't even know who they are. And you get up there and you start to go, is this worth it? And something that they, uh, they forgot to tell us was that the temperature change between sea level and just over 10,000 feet was pretty significant. It was just above freezing. And you start to ask yourself, is, it, is the sunrise really worth it? Is it really worth it? And then you get up there, everybody gets settled, and it's quiet. You see more stars than you've ever seen. You can actually pick out planets because they're larger and brighter than all the other stars. And then the sunrise starts. And then you start to go, what nausea? What cost? What jet lag? As painful as those things were, as expensive as it was, it was worth it. It was absolutely worth it. It was worth the cost for this glorious sunrise. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is having a conversation with two men, and they're sad, and they're discouraged. And Jesus asks, why are you so sad? And they say, because we thought that this Jesus character who was coming was going to be the one who was going to redeem Israel. And he's been crucified, and he's dead, and he was placed in the tomb, and now it's been three days. And what they didn't realize is that the glorified Jesus is standing in front of them as they speak. And Jesus says, you foolish ones. And he shares with them from Moses and from the prophets. And he says, look, the Moses and the prophets, everything they wrote was pointing to a person. And that person was Jesus Christ. And here's the crux. Here's what you need to know. And this is what Jesus told them. He said, 
And notice the chronology. First, that Jesus, he must suffer many things. What did Jesus suffer? Trials, temptations, this kangaroo court. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was mocked. He was nailed to a tree. He was pierced. He wore a crown of thorns. He endured the wrath of the Father. And Jesus tells him that first, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So that second, then he would enter his glory. And what was Christ's glory? That he was going to be given the name that is above every name. And that he was going to be at the right hand of God the Father. And that he was going to have a new body. The one they crucified, the one they pierced, the one they beat was going to be brand new incorruptible and he was going to be seated in authority but he says notice the order y'all got it backwards suffering first and then glory and then they realize it these two men that are with Jesus they realize we're with Jesus but Jesus died but now he has a body what they didn't realize at the moment was they got to see his glory these two men got to see his glory the disciples got to see his glory Peter got to see his glory. Paul got to see his glory. That's why Paul can say, to enter into the kingdom of God, what has to come first? Trials and tribulations of many kinds. Paul would even go on later to say in Galatians, he would say, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The marks of Jesus. And we would say, actually, no, you're you're actually wrong, Paul. You bear the marks of, of the Lystrians, the Iconians, Uh, The Jews, the Gentiles, you bear the marks of the rod, the shipwreck. That's actually the marks that are on your body. He says, no, these are the marks of Jesus. Because what does he know? He knows what he has seen. He has seen Jesus Christ suffer many things, die and be buried. But then he got to see Jesus' glory. Peter got to see his glory. Many people got to see his glory. Telling us what? There's a point and there's an end to our pain. These difficult mile markers in our life that are going to come, Jesus promises that they are going to come. There's a point to them. And what's greater news is that there's an end to them. How does Paul know that? Because he saw Jesus glorified, incorruptible. And so when we go back to our question, how do how do we stay on this road? I'm stopped. I took the exit ramp. How do I stay? How do I keep on trucking? How do I keep moving forward? I love what Winston Churchill said. He said this in the context of World War II, but it's true for us this morning. He said, this I know, one only need to endure to conquer. Your job is just to endure. If you endure, you conquer. And when when you kind of put it that way, you go, Okay, I think we can do that. Why? Because the same spirit that empowered Jesus Christ is the same spirit that empowered Peter, is the same spirit that empowered Paul and Barnabas in the story. How did they get up? And how did they go back to Lystra? Back into these cities, Iconium? It's because they know that their suffering has a point and that their suffering has an end, that this life isn't all there is. There's a glory and a life that's coming. There's a sunset. And when you see it, It's so worth it. All you have to do is endure. Do you need endurance? 
That's God's business. He's got lots of it. And if you ask him for it, he will pour it over your head. He's not going to withhold from you. If you need endurance, if you threw the break, if you're on a different road, ask for it. He will give it to you. Maybe you forgot to ask the Lord for that. That's okay. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. And maybe for the first time, you might ask the Lord for that today. I hope you do. Because in Paul's words, in my own words, and in the company of, of this sanctuary, we are the walking wounded. But we know it has a point because it's pushed us to the Lord. It's given us a greater faith in him. Why? Because we know that there's an end to pain. And the end of pain is the beginning of glory. We've seen that sunrise and we say it's worth it. Endure. The Lord will empower you. And we'd love to do that with you. Let's pray. Our great Father in God, for this word, for the life of Paul, how you took care of him and Barnabas, how you filled him with great courage and great strength. Help us to not be cynical. Help us not to shake our head in that when we hear that story and just go, yeah, that's them, but nobody knows me and what I struggle with and, and my pains and my fears. Father, break through. Let not your word return void. Use it to fill us with faith and hope and trust in you. Give us uh, more glimpses and images of the sunrise. Thank you for the life and the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits. And we pray and we thank you in his name. Amen.